Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue in our series, The Missionary God. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Jesus and the Gentiles. I know it seems strange to say it, but there are people who need to be reminded that Jesus was Jewish. That is, he was thoroughly Jewish. And I say that for a number of reasons. There have been many times, especially in the era in which we live, where this has become an issue. You know, we live in a post-colonial world where a, a great many nations in the world who were, who were once subject to European colonialism and who have struggled to gain their independence, well, they now react to any hint of again falling under European rule. And for some of these nations, Christianity is perceived as the religion of the old colonial powers and thus they're resistant to evangelism and missions and the gospel. And that's the sorry result of colonialist history. And it's for that reason that it's very important to capture the true roots of the Christian faith. And those roots are not found in Europe. It would be no more strange to say that an African or an Indian was a Christian than it would be to say that a European was a Christian. In all of these cases, Christianity was and is an imported religion, not from Europe, but from the Middle East. And for that reason, it's necessary to be fully familiar with not just the national identity of Jesus, but also with the root system of Jesus' thinking and his teaching and his global mission. You know, I've embarked on a two-week biblical study on the theme of missions, and I have made the point that the Bible is a global book. It's not a narrow and national Jewish book. The interest of the Bible is stated by Habakkuk the prophet in Habakkuk 2 verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The key to missions is not first to send people out. It is first to understand God's purpose in the creation. God, in his eternal wisdom, has freely chosen to express his perfection, that is, his righteousness and his power, his goodness, his love, his truth, his exhaustive knowledge, his omnipresence, his infinite beauty, by creating a physical world. Furthermore, out of God's boundless wisdom, God has chosen that the earth would progressively be filled with his glory. And missions, if it's anything at all, is a glad proclamation of the glory of God to all of the creation by calling men and women to fall at the feet of Jesus, through whom the Father is reconciling the world to himself. See, I've also pointed out that this progressive filling of the earth with his glory started with his choosing of the nation of Israel. And in the fullness of time, Jesus is the fulfillment of the hopes of Israel. But that brings me back to the whole story of Jesus. See, many of us are not surprised that the Gentiles would flock to Jesus. I mean, after all, as it presently stands, millions of people all around the globe have bent the knee to Jesus and call him Savior and Lord. God is progressively filling the earth with his glory. But it should surprise us that the Gentiles have flocked to Jesus. Indeed, any study of Jesus is a study of the Jewish world and the world of the First Testament. You know, as a starting place, let's look at the first of the four Gospels, or the first of the four eyewitness accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. The first of these accounts, as they appear in our Bible, is the book of Matthew. 
And any reading of Matthew shows us how overwhelmingly Jewish is Jesus. I mean, the book begins with a lengthy genealogy, starting with Abraham and leading directly to Jesus. Jesus is as Jewish as can be, and then it tells the story of Jesus from an informed Jewish perspective. You know, first of all, the name Jesus. The Jewish pronunciation, the name by which he was called, was Yeshua, which means Yahweh, or the God of Israel, saves. The name Yeshua is a derivative of the name Yahshua, or a name which we, in English, get translated as Joshua. In essence, Jesus and Joshua are the same name, reflecting the hope that the God of Israel is the hope of the world. And as we read Matthew, we're overwhelmed that, on average, Matthew quotes from the First Testament about two times in every chapter. Matthew presents Jesus as the fulfillment of the hopes of Israel. Matthew is a kind of bridge to the First Testament, showing us a fully Jewish Jesus and a fully Jewish theology premised on a fully Jewish hope. And so, for instance, when Jesus is born of a virgin, Matthew quotes Isaiah 7, verse 14, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And in Matthew 2, verse 15, after Jesus' parents have taken him and they have fled to Egypt, Matthew quotes Hosea 11, verse 1, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, you know, a great many European scholars have criticized Matthew here. They say he's misused the Old Testament. You know, but Jewish rabbis would not have criticized him for this, for this is a very common Jewish way of understanding the Word of God. But it is Jesus, both his teaching and his manner of life, which help us to see him clearly. Let me give an illustration. In Matthew 5, verse 3, Matthew records Jesus as saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's the Jewish Christian scholar Arnold Fruchtenbaum that comments on this passage. So let me quote Dr. Fruchtenbaum in full so we get a sense of his understanding of what Jesus is doing. He says, in its context, in the Jewish frame of reference in which it was spoken, the Sermon on the Mount is the Messiah's interpretation of the standard of righteousness which the Torah demanded, put in contrast with some of the Pharisaic interpretations. A better title for this sermon would be The Messiah's Interpretation of the Righteousness of the Torah. Or simplistically stated, the difference is between mere external conformity in contrast to internal conformity that naturally lends itself to the Torah. I don't know if you got that. Let me try to restate it. Dr. Fruchtenbaum is saying that the Sermon on the Mount is teaching the essence of the Old Testament law, the Jewish Torah. Jesus is saying, you Pharisees, you've twisted the Torah. That's not what it says. Let me teach the people the true meaning of Torah. Notice how different that is from the way a great many people think about Jesus. See, they think that Jesus ended the Old Testament, and then he introduced the gospel as an alternative to Jewish religion. But that's simply not true. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Don't think I have come to abolish the Torah and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to complete them. That's the real Jesus. He's the Torah teacher who shows that the true understanding of the Jewish Torah leads to an inner transformation a repentance, faith in God. But of course, Jesus shows us the true intent of the Torah by showing us that he is the fulfillment of what the Torah has taught. 
And so the Torah, when understood rightly, should lead the Jewish people to look for a, for a new heart and a new spirit, to a transformation from within. They should be looking for a Savior who would rescue them from their sins. Now, some of you might be taking objection to that idea. I quoted from Matthew 5.17 as saying that Jesus is completing the Torah. Many of you understand Jesus is saying, I have come to fulfill the law, and by that, you understand Jesus to say, I'm completing the law in this sense that it no longer matters. But notice what Jesus did say. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Now, those are his words, and we need to take them seriously. This is so important because one contemporary Christian preacher has created quite a controversy as of recent by saying that the Old Testament is passé. No longer matters, he says. The Ten Commandments are over, he says. And Jesus would answer, whenever you hear that, know this, that kind of teaching does not come from me. I did not come to abolish the Torah. No, 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 no. Until heaven and earth pass away, not one dot or the slightest stroke of the pen will disappear from the Torah until I return a second time. That was his teaching. He shows the Torah is true and relevant as well as the rest of the First Testament. He shows that he is the fulfillment of all that the First Testament was longing for and hoping for. No, no, Jesus never abandoned the First Testament. He insisted on it. That brings us to two questions. Did Jesus live like an observant Jew? And secondly, did he violate the law? Let's take those questions one at a time. You know, first notice Matthew 9, verse 20. It says, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came behind him and touched, watch this, the fringe of his garment. Other translations say she touched the hem of his garment. And as we read that, we need to take a little bit of thought. She touched a certain part of his clothing, but what does it mean? Well, any observant Jewish reader would catch it immediately. Jesus was dressed like any faithful Jew. Every day we're so grateful and humbled at how God is blessing this ministry and broadening its reach. We want to share that Back of the Bible Canada has recently eclipsed 5,000 subscribers on YouTube. Thank you so much to everyone who has supported and tuned in. If you've never visited the YouTube channel before, be sure to check it out at Back to the Bible Canada and consider leaving a comment while you're there. One listener recently wrote, I've been a daily listener to the broadcast for a number of years. I'm especially grateful for Dr. John's teaching that God has used to correct, to guide, and to encourage me in the faith. There are times when it seems like the message is designed exactly for me. For more information or to support Back to the Bible Canada with a financial gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Deuteronomy 22 verse 12 has a command for all Jews. It says, you shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. And that's still seen today among observant Jews. And as an extension of that, the corners of a prayer shawl often have knotted fringes. 
there to remind Jews that they are to keep the commands, and Jesus wore exactly that kind of clothing. Well, what does it matter if Jesus wore fringes on his clothing? It simply means that Jesus wore the kind of clothing that was commanded in the Torah. He obeyed it. And in the first century when Jesus lived, there were several traditions that were associated with those fringes. Some thought the fringes possessed healing powers, and that's why this woman in Matthew touches the fringes of his clothing. She thought, if there's anyone who is righteous before God or who keeps Torah, it's this man. His fringes truly represent obedience to God. So if I touch them, I'm going to be healed. That leads us to the next question. Was Jesus observant of the law? See, I ask this because some people think he was not. See, they assume that because he was frequently accused of breaking the Sabbath and because he frequently healed people on the Sabbath, well, Jesus must not have thought that the Torah mattered anymore. But let's remember the context of the day. See, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees had specified 39 different works that were prohibited on the Sabbath. And since work was to cease on the Sabbath, they thought Jesus was a lawbreaker. But was he? Well, in one instance, when his disciples were caught picking grain and rubbing grain in their hands on the Sabbath and then, and then eating it, well, the Pharisees said, well, that's one form of work. See, from their perspective, threshing grain was work, and what Jesus was doing was equivalent to threshing grain. Now, clearly, they were misapplying the law. And and fascinatingly enough, when Jesus answered them, well, it's recorded in Mark 2.27, he said that man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. And he was not just stating the purpose of God. He was actually quoting from a well-known Jewish tradition. Jewish tradition of that era stated, the Sabbath was given over to man and not man to the Sabbath. I hope you see Jesus was reinforcing that tradition that the Pharisees had forgotten. He was charging the Pharisees with misapplying or actually twisting the Torah. And so we can see Jesus was not saying the law doesn't matter anymore. He was saying, you Pharisees, you're twisters of the law. And I hope you see that the New Testament portrayal of Jesus is not only that Jesus is the Son of God, which, by the way, he is, but it also portrays him as a true man, a true observant Jew, faithful to the Torah, teaching faithfulness to the Torah, rather than the Pharisaic misinterpretation of Torah. Now, why am I, when I'm speaking about missions, am I speaking about Jesus and his relationship to the law? Well, that's because I'm taking us to Matthew 15, verses 21 to 26. It's a passage that makes so many of us uncomfortable. Well, let's read it. It says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was said only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, let's examine again what Jesus was saying, especially now in verse 24. 
I've come only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, if you listened to me yesterday, you heard me say that the commands God gave Israel had global implications. Among the many Old Testament passages I quoted, one came from 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon was then dedicating the temple and was praying to God. And one of the things he prayed was recorded in 1 Kings 8, 41 to 43. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name in your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. And that, I said, accurately reflected the heart of the First Testament. God was giving his revelation to Israel so that the earth would eventually hear. God was progressively filling the earth with his glory. And in the days of Solomon, Israel was given an amazing opportunity to begin to spread abroad the greatness of the glory of God. By the way, I just have to interject here. See, I remember a number of years ago, a Muslim woman coming to my office, and she had come to our prayer room in our church building to pray to Jesus for her sick and dying son. And God answered her prayer. He was healed instantly. See, I had the joy of leading her to faith in Christ, and and that's what Solomon wanted. Oh, God. Hear the prayer of the foreigners so that the earth may know the one true God, so that the day may be at hand when the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But let's get back to Jesus. You know, this Canaanite woman was everything that the First Testament was longing for. She was coming to a temple greater than Solomon's temple. She came to the fulfillment of all that was good and true in the First Testament. She came to the longings of Abraham that through him and his offspring, all the world would be blessed. And she was asking Jesus the fulfillment of all things. Bless me too. Have mercy on my daughter. She's demon-possessed. And Jesus says, I won't take the bread that belongs to the children, meaning I won't take the bread of life that belongs to the children of Israel and toss it to you, a Gentile dog. (laughs) At this moment, Jesus seems for the first time in his ministry to violate the very longings of the First Testament. And furthermore, we might argue if this is so, then what Jesus are you doing in the region of Tyre and Sidon in the first place? And furthermore, Why did you have such mercy on that Samaritan woman at the well? And what about your kindness to those many Roman centurions? I mean, why won't you just say the word and and heal this poor woman's daughter? But notice what happens next in this account. Instead of reacting in horror and in outrage at this obvious racial slur and contempt of something, she can't change her race or her culture that she was born into. Is she to be discarded because of that? Is she to be thought of no more as a a Gentile dog? But she doesn't say any of that. Look at her response. It's recorded in Matthew 15, 27. She said, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. That's an incredible response. She doesn't argue. She doesn't contradict Jesus. She says, you know, if you say I'm a Gentile dog, then so be it. I'm a Gentile dog. But there are crumbs that fall from the table of Israel so that dogs like me can eat from the floor and find mercy. 
Won't there be some now? And we come to Jesus' response now in verse 28. Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So what's just happened here? Well, from my understanding and from the parallel accounts from Mark and Luke, it seems to me that Jesus was using this woman as an example to his disciples who had the same disease that so many had in Israel. They despised Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles in the temple was closed during Passover so that money changers and merchants could trade their wares. And whereas the First Testament opened the door to the Gentiles, the heretical in Israel had nothing but contempt for the Gentiles. Now, Jesus shared none of that contempt, but here in this incident, he's deliberately reflecting back to them what their contempt looks like. He wants the disciples to understand what this attitude feels like. And what do they find? Well, they find that many Gentiles are so desperate for the blessings of God that they would put up with contempt so that they might find grace from the God of Israel. And that, folks, is the mystery of Jesus. He, a thoroughly Jewish Messiah, who taught and lived in a thoroughly Jewish way, had come not just to bless Israel, he had come to bless the whole world. Yes, as Jesus taught, salvation is from the Jews, but what happened to the Jews was but the beginning of God's global agenda. This gospel was always for the whole world, and the Jewish Messiah was always to be the world's Messiah. Join me for so much more tomorrow. John, is there a simple way to describe what what the relationships of Gentiles to Israel is today? Yeah, I mean, we'd probably talk about Gentile Christians to Israel, and And uh, I mean, one, I think every single uh, Gentile believer in Jesus ought to acknowledge that our Messiah is the Jewish Messiah, and the one who sits on the throne is a Jew. Uh, So I think anti-Semitism, we can't have it. Uh, But also, I think there's more than that. I think every single Gentile believer has to say, you know, I owe to Israel an infinite debt of gratitude that I simply can't repay. And because of that, there ought to be an impulse in every single one of us to say, I simply love the Jewish people. Now, obviously, it means uh, clearly we are concerned with evangelism to the Jewish people, but it also means that uh, we ought to look for ways, any way we can, to, to bless the people of Israel. Our relationship will always be there. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. This month, Back to the Bible Canada's focus is on our international ministry partnerships. We want to share the great thing God is doing beyond our borders. The goal for our international ministry efforts in February is to raise $100,000, and we invite you to prayerfully consider how you could help. This month, your gift can send a pastor in India or Sri Lanka to a Bible teaching conference. Just $50 covers all the costs associated or you could choose to participate in our $25,000 international match campaign. Every dollar you give will be matched up to $25,000. And all of this goes to support international partnership efforts, supplying Bible teaching resources, Bible audio programming, and Bible teaching conferences. 
Your generosity makes it all possible. For more information or to give, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.